Well, how we doing tonight? You excited to be in the room or what? Hey, I'm excited um, that you're here, especially if it's your first time. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. We're honored to have you. We want to put our hands together for everyone joining for the first time. My name is Mark, and I get the opportunity of being on team here as our college and young adult pastor at Grace. And uh, if it's your first time, I'm so glad you're here. We're in week three of a series as we've been studying the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And it's been really good. In week one, I opened up the series and uh, I took us to Revelation chapter one where this man by the name of John, he gets a revelation of Jesus. He's on an island called Patmos and he gets this vision of Jesus. And in week two, uh, I went to, or excuse me, in week one, I also spoke out of Revelation chapter two and we spoke on the church of Ephesus and we focused on how Jesus he called this church out and said, hey, you've lost your first love. And last week we had Pastor Howe Mayer. Come on, can we give it up for Pastor Howe? Did an amazing job speaking on the church of Pergamum and the immorality and the sin that was existing in that church. But today I want to speak on the church of Smyrna. Somebody say Smyrna. These are interesting names. I know, I know, I know. And Here's what we know so far in the text. There's a man by the name of John. He's an apostle. He's a disciple of Jesus. And John, he finds himself exiled, left to die on an island called Patmos. And as John is on this island called Patmos, many scholars would believe that this man was just boiled in a vat of oil, now thrown on this island, left there to die because he was preaching the gospel and sharing his faith. And right there as John is on the island of Patmos, this, this plain, dark island off the coast of Turkey, what we know is Jesus reveals himself to John in his darkest hour through a vision. And as John gets this vision of the glorious resurrected Jesus, Jesus then tells John, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write to the seven influential churches of that day and age in Asia. I want you, John, to write what I tell you to write to these seven churches in Asia. And as John gets this vision of Jesus, what he learns is Jesus is standing in the middle of these churches. Jesus shows up in this vision, standing in the middle of seven lampstands, which is a representation of the seven influential churches in that day and age. And I want you to just get this picture in your mind and your heart today, because this is a picture of Jesus standing in the middle of his church. And as Jesus is standing in the middle of his church, it's a picture for you and I to understand that Jesus is aware of the happenings and the doings of his church. Jesus, he's, he's aware of our, the church, the body of Christ, each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. He's aware of our struggles. He's aware of our setbacks. He's aware of the areas that we are stuck in. I just want you to get that in your heart as we look at Revelation chapter 2. Verses 8 through 11. If you have a Bible, I want you to open up. The book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible, just saying. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. And it reads like this. To the angels of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are Rich. Somebody say rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. But you, you are a sin, or they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. 
and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Somebody say 10 days. But be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So here's what we know about Smyrna. Smyrna is a place that's now actually called Izmir. It's actually in the western region of Turkey. And the place of Smyrna, this city and the church, it was a beautiful place. It was a desirable place to go and visit. And many people wanted to go to Smyrna because of its beauty. It was covered with great architecture and statues, and it had beautiful temples, and many people loved this place. Even till this day, it's actually known as the, one of the most beautiful cities in all of Turkey. But Smyrna, this city, it was influential as it served as a major hub for import and export in that day and age. But not only that, it was also a place where many scientists and philosophers would come, and they would present new teachings and ideologies and philosophies, and all these people would reside in this space, all to be in the most beautiful city called Smyrna. But more importantly, when you study Smyrna, here, here's what we learn when we study the book of Revelation, more, spe more specifically the church of Smyrna. What we learn is that this area or this church or this region, it was actually one of the most persecuted regions in all of Turkey. It was one of the most persecuted churches because there was a Roman imperial religion right there in Smyrna. And when I say Roman imperial religion, it was a group of Romans that believed that there was multiple gods and goddesses that you could declare as Lord. There were multiple gods and goddesses in this day and age that many of these Romans believed were actually Lord. In fact, they believed that if you didn't believe this, you should die. They were persecuting anyone that believed differently. But here we have a group of Christians who were truly believing in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Jesus calls this a faithful church. He calls this a group of faithful Christians, faith-filled Christians. But the Romans didn't like this. See, the Romans, they, they would suggest that you would come into our temple and you would bring an offering or donation to the altar. And you would declare that the Caesar, the emperor of that day, the Roman emperor, was Lord. And then after that, you can go about your business and do whatever you wanted to do. But the Christians in that day and age, they refused to bow down to anyone other than the name of Jesus. They refused to, to call on any emperor. The emperor in that day and age in AD 96, his name was Domitian. And they believed that there was only one God and his name was Jesus Christ. They stayed faithful. And the church of Smyrna, not only did they remain faithful... They remained strong. And they made a decision, we're not going to conform to the beliefs of society. We're not going to conform to the beliefs of these Romans. And I just believe in this hour, God is looking for that type of church. I believe God is looking for a church of people that are not willing to compromise and bow their knee to anyone other than the name of Jesus. He, he wants a faithful church. He, he wants a church that's willing to commit to the one and only King of kings and Lord of lords. But when we read this text... I want you to note that the church of Smyrna, uh, they're one of two churches that aren't called out by Jesus, they're commended by Jesus. Out of all the seven churches that we read about in Revelation chapter 2, they're one of two churches that aren't confronted, aren't called out, aren't criticized or uh, condemned. They're actually confronted and commended by Jesus. You see, Jesus, he, he commends this church because in this era, the persecution was intensified. 
This is the most intense persecution ever known in this era. And Christians, they were under persecution, affliction, suffering, and, and pressure on every side because of their faith and belief in Jesus. So Jesus, in this moment, he commends this church. And I know it's hard to connect with the idea of persecution because thank God we live in a nation. I know it's not perfect, but we can come into this house and worship our Savior freely. I think that with that in mind, we just ought to thank God for five seconds for that simple fact. That we can walk in this space on a weekly basis and praise the name Jesus. It's hard for us to really connect to the persecution that they were experiencing. But this wasn't like friendly fire like you see today when people have different political views. Or this wasn't let's cancel you on the media. Persecution in that day and age was lock you in prison, throw the keys away, feed you to lions, boil you to death. And see you be burned alive. But these Christians in this moment, they didn't back down knowing that. These people, they stood firm and said, I'm only giving my allegiance and my worship and my praise to God. And I'm committed to doing this till the end. So Jesus in the text, he says, hey, church of Smyrna, I know your persecution. I understand your afflictions. I know your suffering. I know what you're walking through. But I don't want you to be afraid. Like, when you read the Bible sometimes, aren't you just like, how, could, how does this make sense? Like, yo, they're, they're willing to throw me to lions. What do you mean don't be afraid, bro, you know? Don't be afraid. But look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. He says, to the angel, angels of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life. Again, this is what John is saying. He says, he is the first and the last. Jesus is the first and the last. He died. But he came back to life again. See, Jesus tells this church, I know you're suffering. I know you're going through persecution. I know you got a lot of going up against you right now. But don't be afraid. And he tells them, like, yo, like, what is there to really be afraid of? And everybody that reads this text, you would say, death, you know. It's actually funny. Um, nearly half of society today, their greatest fear is death. And Jesus is saying, yo, like, you, you got nothing to be afraid of, perhaps they would throw me to lions. I should be comfortable and cool about that, right, Jesus? But Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. I am the resurrected Jesus, the one who died and came back to life again. I just want you to get this in your heart today. As Jesus reappears and Jesus comes and reveals himself to this church, he says, you have nothing to be afraid of. I am the resurrected Messiah, the resurrected Son of God, which means I've de defeated sin, death, and the grave. You don't have to fear death. In fact, as you're persecuted and in the event death comes up against you, that's a step towards being with me for eternity. Well, why be afraid, church of Smyrna? But the church, they're, they're probably trembling, they're, they're probably fearful, but they say, they say this, we will not give up on Jesus. We will not give up on Jesus. I've been reading uh, this book called Jesus Freaks, and it's a collection of memoirs and stories of many people who in the modern era were persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And all throughout these stories, you would see many men and women, all different ages from all different places, uh, who found themselves in great persecution for holding on to their faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, what I love about these stories is at the end, they're concluded by saying, thank you, God. All of these people, they thank God for their faithfulness even in the midst of their persecution. They thank God for his faithfulness even in the midst of persecution. Jesus wasn't thanking them. 
They were thanking Jesus for his faithfulness even as they were under persecution. I just think this is important that we understand this picture, what persecution is really all about. Because in this hour, I believe Jesus is looking for a faithful church that may be called Jesus freaks, that may be willing to go against the grain, that's willing to step out and go against the patterns of the world, but they are remaining faithful to God. That's the type of church that Jesus wants in this hour. When we look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus says this to this church. Let's lean in here. It says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, and they are a synagogue of Satan. See, Jesus says, I know about the Jews that behind closed doors, they're actually turning their back on you. I know about the Jews that are actually saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but behind closed doors, they're actually turning you into the Romans. I know the Christians that really aren't holding up to their end of the bargain. I just wonder, when, when Jesus looks at you and when, when Jesus looks at me, would, would we fall into that category? I love what the Bible says all throughout uh, the letters written to the churches, the epistles that we read in the Bibles. Jesus, or Paul, excuse me, Paul always thanks the church for their sincere faith. I wonder today, is your faith sincere? Do you have a faith that's truly rooted in the hope that you can have in Jesus Christ? But I may not know, but I know Jesus does. And the Bible says Jesus, he, he judges the, the heart. He knows the sincerity of your faith. But when you look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, um, there's that word affliction. Everybody say affliction. If you have a Bible, I want you to circle it. Um, because this is an important word as we look at this text today. You see this word affliction... When translated into the Greek, it means thalipsis. 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 Everybody say thalipsis. I'm going to teach you a little Greek today. Okay, thalipsis, it means pressure. It means pressure or crushing pressure. Actually, in Greek literature, whenever they would teach a word, they would use an image. They would associate an image to the word. So this word thalipsis in the Greek, when it's put in a word image, it's actually a picture of an Olympian athlete laying on his back, being crushed by a boulder on his chest. Jesus says, I know your afflictions, I know your hardships, I know your tribulations, but I know you are under crushing pressure. I know you are under crushing pressure. And today, I just want to speak from this idea, I want to help you understand, Jesus is greater than your crushing pressure. Jesus, he is greater than your crushing pressure. I think so many of us today, myself included, we find ourselves in a place where we're under crushing pressure. Pressure that, that feels it's crushing us. Pressure that feels like it's squeezing the life out of us. Pressure that leads us to be, I can't get past the present sufferings and believe that there's a greater future. Pressure that keeps me in the present, believing the lies of the enemy and believing there's no hope for my future. Think about how many of you in the room today, you find yourself in a place where you're experiencing spiritual pressure. I feel like there's some distance between me and God. I, I pray, but I don't feel like God is actually listening. Some of you in the room today, you find yourself in a place where you're experiencing relational pressure. Maybe you have an estranged relationship with a parent. 
Maybe you have a, an estranged relationship with a sibling, or maybe for you, you're, you're walking through a difficult season in your relationships with a significant other, or maybe you're coming out of a difficult relationship. You find yourself in what I call significant crushing pressure relationally. Some of you in the room, let's just acknowledge it, you're, you're experiencing physical pressure. You're under great physical crushing pressure. Maybe you've got sickness in your body. Maybe it's not you, but maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody that you know, a loved one that's experiencing cancer or great sickness, and you're experiencing physical pressure. Maybe you've got mental pressure or emotional pressure. You're plagued with all of these negative thoughts in your mind. You feel like you can't shake the thoughts of depression and suicide and anxiety. Some of you in the room, you're under financial pressure. Can't hold a job. Feel like you're drowning in debt. Can I remind you today, Jesus, he's, he's greater than your pressure. Jesus, he's, he's greater than your crushing pressure. And I just kind of want to speak about this sensitively because I know some of you really find yourself in a place where you feel stuck. You feel like you're alone in this season of life. You're, you're battling loneliness. You're plagued with all of these negative thoughts and emotions. And it's important we know that there's people around you that feel like they're under crushing pressure. But I think when it comes to this idea of crushing pressure or pain or, or suffering or death, we must understand that this is all a natural cause because of sin. I know I'm teaching a lot today. I know I'm kind of giving you a lot on the front end. But you need to understand pressure, pain, suffering, death, all of these things that we experience in the human experience, these are a product of sin. And so many of us need to understand from the beginning of time when God created the heavens and the earth, he looked at it and said it was good. But then man came into the picture, sinned, and rebelled against the will of God, which ushered in sin. And from that day forward, we've all experienced pressure. We've all experienced sin. We've all experienced some level of suffering in this life. And yes, you could question God, but friend, it's not God's fault. You can thank your great, great, great grandparents, Adam and Eve. For this situation. <laughs> in this generation, many of us, we, we get to a place where we encounter suffering. We encounter pressure. We encounter pain. We encounter death. We encounter hardship. We encounter all these different things and we start questioning God. Start questioning, questioning God. Like, God, why does this have to happen to me, God, like, why are you allowing this to take place in my life? Let me just speak to this, because I think that we got a problem in this generation, too, where so many of you, even in the church today, they're teaching unbiblical doctrine and false theology that teaches you if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, it evaporates the pressure. It's actually Jesus that says in John 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble, in this world you will have pressure, but take heart, he's already come, overcome. See, the truth is, Jesus, he, he doesn't remove our problems. He doesn't remove our pressure. He provides peace as we go through the pressure. He doesn't remove it. He, he guides us and brings us through it. And some of us today, we need to get some doctrine and we need to get a better handle on our theology and realize, friend, you're not called to give up on Jesus as you go through the pressure. You're called to cling to Jesus and hold fast to his promises. That's the type of church that he wants. 
It's not a group of people that shrink back under pressure. It's a group of people that stand firm and hold on to Jesus till the end. See, notice that the pressure that the church of Smyrna is under is is not because of their sin or it's not because they're living in wickedness. It's because of their faithfulness. The church of Smyrna is not experiencing pressure. They're not experiencing suffering. They're not experiencing hardship because of their wickedness, but rather because of their faithfulness. I think it's important as we're running after Jesus, there's somebody named the enemy and he is after you. Chances are you're going to encounter pressure. Because you made a decision in your heart to be faithful to Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. He says, I know your pressure, I know your afflictions, and I see your poverty, yet you are rich. I know your pressure and I know your poverty, yet you are rich. You ever read the Bible and go, God, help me make sense of this. How do you see about poverty, but then you call me rich? See, what's taking place in this moment, give you a little backdrop. Many scholars believe that the church of Smyrna, they found themselves in a place where they're standing firm and they're being faithful to Jesus. So much so that the Roman imperial religion, the group of Romans, they ran through the city of Smyrna and they robbed and ransacked all these Christians of their possessions. So Jesus is saying, yo, I know you, you've been robbed. I know you guys don't have much of anything left. But I want to remind you, because of your faithfulness, I'm storing up treasures in heaven for you. You're really rich. You're really rich. And I just feel like this is a message for us as we remain faithful to God. Even though our bank accounts don't look like it's got a whole bunch. But if we remain committed, if we stay in the fire, there are treasures in heaven stored up for us. I love what the Bible says. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. No, not once. But so many of us, we're, we're not feeling like we're forsaken. We're living with the mentality that we're forsaken. Woe is me, God, why does this always have to happen? God, why, why are you blessing those that don't even trust you, God? Why have you just been so faithful to them, God? Help me understand this, God. I've been faithful to you. I've been serving. I'm on team. I'm giving. I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. But I got all this pressure in my life, God. Help me make sense of this, God. I know I'm not the only one that's asked these questions. God, what is wrong with me? Just wonder today as you find yourself in spaces and places where you're experiencing pressure. How does this change your view of God? Like we got to honestly ask this question to ourselves. How is the pressure and the suffering affecting my view of Jesus? How is the suffering and the pressure Affecting my faith. Is the suffering, the pressure, is it pulling me away from Jesus? Or is it drawing me closer to Jesus? Do I start questioning God? Am I not, not believing wholeheartedly in his word and what his word has to say? So many of us in this generation, we start deconstructing and falling away from the faith because of our suffering. You know, I just 
kind of dropped a lot on you. But let me just kind of pastor you in this moment. Because I myself, I found myself in so many spaces and places and moments in my life where I've questioned the sovereignty of God. But it is so important that you understand you don't find your answers in the world. You find your answers in his word. As you're searching, as you're seeking, don't, don't turn to the things of the world. I want to challenge you to start turning your attention to the word of God. And as I was praying and preparing for this message, I, I was traveling all this past week. And last night I was on a flight and I started praying like, Lord, all right, what is it that you want them to take away from this text? What is it that you, you want these people, so many people in the room today who feel stuck and feel challenged and feel like they can't break free of the pressure. What do you want them to take from this text? And God had me look back on the moments in my life where I felt trapped by pressure. He had me look back on the moments in my life where there was sickness in my sister's body that they said was going to be chronic sickness. He had me look back on the moments where my parents' marriage was falling, falling apart before my eyes. He had me look back on the moments where I was struggling with my faith. And he, he said, what would you have wanted to know when you found yourself under crushing pressure? So I want to be practical here. And I want to give you five things to know as you experience pressure. Number one is this, pressure is a part of life. Pressure is a part of life. See, each and every one of us, we're, we're going to experience pain, we're going to experience suffering, we're going to experience pressure. But I just want you to know, don't be mistaken, this is not a reflection of our God. Pain and suffering and pressure is an indication that we need a God. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, I just think this is so interesting. And if you weren't with us in week 1, I helped you understand Jesus revealing himself to this man by the name of John in this vision. It's important you see this. John is in his darkest hour laying, bandaged, wrapped up, wounded, left on an island called Patmos to die. This is his darkest moment. This is his darkest hour. But as he's in this moment, he's worshiping. And what happens? Jesus, he reveals himself to John. I think it's important we see this pressure is a part of life and none of us are exempt from it. But as we go through pressure, let us have eyes to see where Jesus is revealing himself. Got to have eyes to see. Even Jesus, though, he experienced pressure. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, the high priest, this high priest of ours, he understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testing that we do, yet he did not sin. Verse 16, I love this. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find his grace to help us when we need it most. Pressure, it's a, it's a part of life. Second thing I want you to know is God can bring purpose to your pressure. God can bring a purpose to your pressure. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering, it produces perseverance, and perseverance, it produces character, and character, hope. Pressure, it, it produces in our life. I remember when I first started working out as a kid, I had a bird chest, okay? Um, don't laugh. Uh, anyways, 
remember having like this bird chest. So what do you do when you have a bird chest and you're 11 years old? You take off your, ch- uh, your shirt, you go to the basement, you start doing push-ups. You get body hard, right? And I started going to the gym. I don't know why my parents would buy it. Anyways, we're going to talk about that. 12 years old, I'm in the gym and see all these guys like repping it out on the bench press. Got like 215, 315 on the bench press. So what does little 12-year-old Mark do? I go over to the bench press and start throwing these 45-pound weights on it. And I get under it. And how many of you know that thing crushed the living life out of your boy, okay? <laughs> you know? So over time, um, I had a fear of the bench press. Like, I'm staying away from that thing. Thing crushed me once, you won't get me again. But over time, I was like, I, I need to actually get stronger. I started playing sports and started getting underneath the bench press, but I would, instead of starting with a 45, I'd start with a 25 and work my way up. But it wasn't until I changed my perspective on the weight that it led me to stop seeing it as crushing weight, but weight that was actually helping me get stronger. I just wonder how many of us in the room today, we find ourselves under crushing pressure. But what if you, friend, flip the perspective on how you see the weight and said, this isn't crushing me, this is making me stronger. It's making me stronger. That weight, it's not crushing you, it's making you stronger. Your situation, it's not crushing you, it's making you stronger. You say, how am I getting stronger? It's building your faith. And the Bible says that faith, it produces character and character leads to hope. He's building your faith. He's building your faith. He's building your faith. The third thing I want you to know is pressure, it's temporary. Pressure is is temporary. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, it says this, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, Jesus says. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you, you will suffer for 10 days. important we see that Jesus, he's using figurative language, not literal language. When he's speaking to the church of Smyrna, he's not saying, yo, you're, you're literally just going to suffer for 10 days. Could you imagine like if Jesus is like, you're going to suffer for 10 days. And we're just standing there like, all right, Lord, like when's this going to be over? Jesus, he's, he's using figurative language to help us understand suffering, pressure, it's limited to this side of the cross. Suffering and pressure doesn't take place in heaven. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It's the promise of God. And when we get to heaven, if we have remained faithful, if we've had a sincere faith and trust in Jesus, when we get to see Jesus face to face, all of the pressure, all of the pain, all the suffering, all the hardship, it's gone. It's gone. There's no more death. Won't be any more suffering, no more, no more pain, no more pressure. We'll wipe away the tears from each and every one of his believers, but we've got to remain faithful and sincere in our faith. The fourth thing I want you to know is we've got to learn how to fight pressure with pressure. 
We gotta learn how to fight pressure with pressure. I love this quote so much. It's by the famous artist, John Wayne. I want you to lean in on this. He says, Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ and Christ's cause. You are personally no interest to Satan. It is only until you relate to Christ that you assume significance in the enemy's eyes. Let me read that again. Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ and Christ's cause. You are personally no interest to him, but it is only until you relate to Christ that you assume significance in the eyes of the enemy. So what are you telling me, Mark? As, as I follow after Jesus, as I commit my life to Jesus, when I start serving and reading my Bible, when I surrender my life to him, when I start praying and crying out to him, when I put my faith and trust in him, you're telling me the enemy is after me? Yes. Think about this moment. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus just finished praying and fasting for 40 days. Probably at his closest point in his relationship with the Father. What happens? Satan shows up and he starts to test him and tempt him. Satan tells him in Matthew chapter 4 verse 3, Satan comes and he, he tempts him. He says, if you're the son of God, tell the stones to become bread. But listen to what Jesus says, verse 4. He says, it is written in the word of God that man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Satan, he would also do this two more times. But after he tempts and tests Jesus, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus use as his rebuttal, the word of God? When I say fight pressure with pressure, we need to understand the enemy is coming after you 24-7 with pressure. But friend, you've got power when you start calling on scripture and reciting the powerful word of God. You can't fight this battle in your own strength. That's why when Jesus shows up in Revelation chapter 1, how is he depicted? How is he revealed to the apostle John? The scriptures tell us he has a sword coming out of his mouth. This is indicative of the authority and the power of God. Jesus ain't come to play games. His word ain't come to play games. And I'm telling you the truth today. I believe God's looking at a generation that says, stop shrinking back. Step forward with the authority that's found in my word. You can't do this in your own strength. You've got to come with the power that's found in my word. Number five, I want you to get this. Understand pressure can produce a sweet I was in Atlanta um, yesterday and for the past couple days and um, had an opportunity to, to go spend some time with um, Pastor Louis Giglio and some of the staff at Passion City Church. And as I was there, uh, Pastor Louis, he was telling us a story about where he grew up. And he grew up in the town called Smyrna. I thought this was so interesting. And Smyrna is just a few miles north of Atlanta, Georgia, and he was telling us all about Smyrna. And I started doing some research in Smyrna, but what was interesting, every single time I would Google Smyrna, it would also populate myrrh, the word myrrh. Everybody say myrrh. See, if you've been reading the Bible, if you've read scripture, if you know the story of Jesus at Jesus' birth, many people come and they bring myrrh to the birth of Jesus. See, myrrh, it, it was an oil, it was a perfume that was expensive. They brought this to the baby Jesus. This was also the fragrance or the perfume that Mary is said to bring and placed on the feet of Jesus. This was an expensive perfume, an expensive aroma. And many people desired to have this myrrh. 
You see, the thing that's interesting about myrrh, though, is it's actually produced from the bark of a tree called a kamaphora tree, and it's only found in Africa. They got a picture on the screen of this, this tree. I just kind of want to make sure you get this picture, though. See, myrrh, this sweet fragrance, it's only produced when the bark of the tree is crushed. This fragrance, this expensive perfume is only produced from the bark of the tree when it is crushed. I just wonder today when you are being crushed by pressure, are you projecting something that is sweet or something that is sour? My one-year-old daughter, one of her favorite beverages right now, it's, it's orange juice. But this girl's bougie, okay? Harlan, she only likes Natalie's organic orange juice. Shout out to Natalie, but I don't know how I feel about you because it is the world's most expensive orange juice. So your boy tries to cut back, of course, and dad usually does grocery shopping. And um, mom goes, all right, let's just try something different. I love my wife so much. This is great. And I'm like, I'm all about it, girl. Let's cut back, you know. She's like, let's go just get her some regular concentrate orange juice. So I come back home and I give Harlan this concentrate orange juice. And this girl sips. Spits it out of her mouth. I said, girl, you better stop being so bougie. You about to drink this orange juice. Start spitting it out of her mouth. But I had some Natalie's orange juice left in the fridge. You give it to her and she goes, Just wonder today, as you're being crushed, are you producing something that's bitter or are you producing something that's sweet? And I believe as followers of Jesus, as we're under crushing pressure, as we're experiencing pressure in our lives, we're called to produce something that's sweet. Why? Because just as people love the fresh and strong, beautiful aroma of myrrh, how many of you know it, it draws people in? A beautiful fragrance, it pulls people closer. I believe, friend, as you're being squeezed by life's pressure, you should be projecting something that's sweet so people can come up to you and go, yo, yo, tell me, like, how are you experiencing all this hardship and pressure, but you remain so, so joyful? How do you have so much joy in your life in spite of the fact that you're going through sickness and hardship and you just lost your job? How are you filled with all of this joy? And you tell them, I have the hope of Jesus Christ. I've got the hope of Jesus Christ. What comes out of your life as you're under crushing pressure? I don't want you to leave this room tonight for a second thinking if you find yourself in a place where you're experiencing pressure, that you're alone. I don't want you leaving this room tonight if you find yourself in a place where you're experiencing crushing pressure, believing that there's no hope for you. I don't want you to leave this room tonight if you find yourself in a place where you're plagued with negative thoughts that you need to believe the lies of the enemy anymore. I want you to know, not only do I care about you as your pastor, not only does our team care about you, Jesus cares about you. And he sees your pressure. He knows your suffering. He knows the afflictions that you are experiencing. But he wants you to 
to come to you. We didn't know this. Jesus, he experienced pressure. Jesus, he, he experienced pressure. I think about the most intense moment in Jesus' 33 years of life here on earth. He finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's preparing to die by way of crucifixion, death on a cross. And in his darkest hour and his last moments on earth, he starts to cry out to the Father and he asks him, Father, is there any other way? And as he realized he is the only way, he begins to sweat droplets of blood because he knew the pressure, the suffering that was going to be placed on his body. In that moment, he asked his disciples to, to pray with him and pray for him, but his disciples, they, they fell asleep. And I just think that, man, as I was reading this text and praying over this talk, this is a house of prayer that when you can't believe God to do something in your life, you've got a group of people that will believe God for you. This is a house that believes in the wonder-working power of God. But I'm just believing today. You need a reminder. You're not alone. There's a God who, in heaven who, who cares deeply about this pressure that you're experiencing. But he wants you to come to him. I want to read this verse again, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. But I'm going to read Eugene Patterson's paraphrase found in the message translation. He says, now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let us not, slip through, let, us not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing and pressure. He's experienced it all but the sin. I love that. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to bring. Take the mercy and accept the help. Let us walk right up to him and call on him for everything that we need to get through the suffering, to get through the pressure, to get through the pain. Right now, I want to invite the prayer team to the front and all across the room right now. There's people in this room that want to pray with you and pray for you tonight. And I want you to know, Jesus knows exactly what you need in this season to get through your pressure. These people are up here not just to pray with you or pray for you, but to remind you of the promises of God. They want to speak life and speak scripture over you. They want to remind you, you are not alone. I don't know what you're walking through today, but I believe in the room there's people who find themselves in a place where they're experiencing physical pressure. There's people in the room tonight that find themselves plagued with these negative thoughts of suicide. There's people in the room tonight that find themselves battling with depression. There's people in the room tonight that are plagued with anxiety. There are people in the room tonight that are plagued with all of this financial pressure. They're drowning in debt and they just don't feel like there's hope or a future or a way out. I want to remind you today, as long as there are men by the name of Jesus, there is hope for your soul. There's hope for your life. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He defeated not only sin and death and the grave, but he defeated your suffering. And you can call on him tonight.
I want to remind you there's people in this room that can believe God for the miracles in your life when you can't believe it for yourself. So if you're in the room and you're saying, I, I feel this pressure in my life, I, I want you to take the most bold step and I want you to walk to this altar. The Bible says the altar is the meeting place of God. You can meet with God in this moment. Nobody's judging you. This is your moment with God. Healing can be found tonight. Freedom can be found tonight. Deliverance can be found tonight. So if that's you, I want you to come to the altar right now. There's people in the room. You're filled with sickness in your body. You're filled with negative thoughts. You have this overwhelming pressure. Do not miss this moment to find your freedom. He wants to set you free. The band, they're going to be up here. They're going to sing a song. I want to challenge you. Don't miss this moment to take a step towards your freedom.